Welcome to Westminster's Noon Town Hall Forum. I'm Donald Meisel. I'm one of those who minister to and with this downtown congregation. You might well ask, why is Westminster Presbyterian Church sponsoring this forum series, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective? It's because we believe that the issues facing our world, our own society, and our cities are nothing less than staggering. Furthermore, we believe that nothing less than profoundly ethical, deeply caring, and mentally rigorous approaches to these issues offer any hope of resolving them. We believe, furthermore, that it is part of our responsibility as a downtown congregation to provide you with opportunities to be engaged by and to engage people of mental and moral tenacity in the major areas of our concern and their expertise. Now, it's a well-known fact that medical care is one of the major issues facing our society. We're hearing more and more about medical ethics. Critical issues in medical ethics is, as a matter of fact, the title of Dr. Najarian's address to us today. Since 1967, Dr. John Najarian has served as professor and chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Minnesota. His credentials are pages long. They are as long as he stands tall, and I won't attempt to rehearse them here today. His reputation and accomplishments, not least of all in the area of transplant surgery and associated research, speak for themselves. And now we're going to give Dr. Najarian a chance to speak for himself. Let me say parenthetically, or not so parenthetically, that he had three surgical procedures already this morning. Dr. Najarian, we welcome you. Thank you very much, uh, Pastor Mizell, and it's uh, a real honor for me to be asked to be part of such a prestigious forum as has been developed by Westminster Presbyterian Church. And I must say that I was contacted a year and a half ago, and I really didn't sit down and put my thoughts together on this item until the past uh, two days, uh, because I really didn't know what the medical issues would be, and plus other commitments that I had at the time. But what I'm going to try to do today is to share with you what I feel are at least three major areas of medical concern, or critical issues in medical ethics, and to try to expand on those within the time limits that we have. And then, of course, during the question period, we'll find out specifically what you think about those particular areas. In the first place, I think we have to decide what are ethics themselves, and medical ethics in particular. I feel it's a system of moral principles that we must follow and obey. And how can we look at these moral principles 
in a way in which all of us can be satisfied that they are in keeping with our own tenets and our own thoughts and our own morality, if you will. I think it's very nicely to consider that the codes of ethics may differ from individual to individual, even in this room, depending on their own religious, legal, social folklore, professional family, or personal attitudes. In such intuitive belief is right, humanism, utilitarianism, or personal happiness. Any one of these may play a part in the development of ethics in the true sense. In my own feeling, I think that there's probably no greater guide, at least from the point of view of a Judeo-Christian or Christian ethic, than to think of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave in Matthew, where he stated, love thy neighbor. And basically, whether you call this the golden rule or the greatest commandment, this is embodies what the thoughts and what the principles that should guide you in any form of ethics, whether they be medical or not, and this is how they should evolve. So basically, this is my own personal look and expose of my thoughts on these issues, and they are personal, and in fact, they're quite individual, per se, and I don't speak for the medical community, I only speak for myself, and what I hope I can teach to my residents, students, and fellows. The major areas of concern as I see them for medical issues today revolve around first birth, the beginning, in the beginning, and then second on life and maturity or experimentation that may go on between birth. And of course, finally, the one thing that we cannot survive in this life without, and that's death. In these three areas, I think that we're looking at where the major crises may lie. As it's so well placed in Ecclesiastics 3, to every time there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. Thus there are times. And I think of those, it was well stated in the Old Testament, that we must look first then at birth, a time to be born. Now in the area of birth, what are the issues that would face us? The one that is very obvious to us all is abortion. This is probably one of the hottest medical issues around today. There are very exercised individuals on both sides of the coin whether they be the so-called right to life movement or those that are pro-abortion, this is probably the most difficult issue to come to grips with that we know of in medicine today. The courts have ruled for us. They have stated that abortion is legal and abortion on demand is something that can be given. And this is what occurs. And then we as physicians must work within our own morality within that legal limit and we do. And abortion is done now in a situation in which we feel we're dealing strictly with somebody who will not survive or not a somebody, a thing or organism that will not survive. We draw our limits this way. 
We say that the birth should not be beyond 24 weeks and not beyond 500 grams in weight. And in this way, we know that survival of that form of life is not possible in a non-parasitic sense with its mother. So at least we assuage our own conscience to say this type of abortion is legal and is probably morally correct in the eyes of some and immoral in the eyes of others. It's not clear like death because we don't know where life begins. Does it begin when a single cell, a sperm and an ova fuse to make a single cell that eventually divides? Or does it begin at the time of conception? Or does it begin uh, at the time of delivery? We don't know and we are in a bad position to judge. We do know what area of survival is and that's how we draw our own medical ethics in the area of abortion. Whether this will change in the future, I don't know. As I say, it's one of the hottest subjects around. It is argued by the obstetricians and the right to life people almost every day in the newspapers and occasionally in the courtrooms. Let's get to another issue, though, that we may be able to grapple with a little better than abortion, at least to put it down, and that's test tube babies. How much we heard about test tube babies when the first so-called test tube baby occurred in uh, England. And what, in fact, is a test tube baby? A test tube baby is really nothing more than a sperm and a egg that has been fertilized within a single petri dish, not within a test tube, but within a dish, so that you can now, for some young lady who can't have a baby, perhaps be in a situation where conception can occur outside of the body, and therefore, eventually, as it progresses, be re-implanted back into the uterus, either of that mother, or as been suggested by some, a surrogate mother, someone else who is perhaps paid to carry this baby. Is this an or a medical, ethical issue? It really isn't. As a matter of fact, it's not even very fascinating if you think about it. The fascination of birth was the fact that you can get a single cell that will eventually become a trillion cells and within a period of nine months to form a complete eight-pound baby that does all the things that we know of, and this is the miracle that goes on around us at all times. But as was stated one time by Lou, as has been previously stated, this has been going on under our eyes for so long that a time that, that we've just gotten used to it, the hen hence the outcries of amazement at the really minor technical modifications of this general procedure, nothing much, really, beyond relocating the beginning of the process from the fallopian tube to a plastic container. Perhaps it's worth mentioning the exclusion of the father from any role likely to add with any justification to his vanity. So in essence, all we're doing is changing conception from the fallopian tube into a dish. And as I see it, this probably is a very difficult thing to do it, and we're really not sure to date if it has ever been done. And this is a real question, even with the British report and several other reports since. It's a very difficult thing to do, and I don't think it's going to present any major ethical problems. 
Another ethical problem in birth has to do with children that are born with anomalies. Whether they're Down syndrome or heart defects or other anomalies, anencephalics, a variety of conditions which we find as sometimes grotesque and sometimes incompatible with life, but occasionally compatible with life and yet in a situation in which there is nothing we can do but to keep the organism alive for a variable period of time. This brings up many ethical problems and considerations, specifically as it relates to Down syndrome and children with Down syndrome. Should we operate on these children and correct their heart defects? This is a very common anomaly to go along with Down syndrome, is to have a hole in the heart or some heart defect that's associated with it. We have chosen the role of correcting those lesions, keeping these children alive, because we only as physicians can help with life, and this is a decision that we can't make, nor do we want to make. About the only situation that really gets a little touchy here is when we have some child born with a condition that's not compatible with life, so-called antacephaly, where a child is born without a brain whatsoever. And under these circumstances, this is incompatible with life, and we can do one of two things. We can either feed that child intravenously and keep the organism alive for a week or two, or do very little, and the child or organism will now die within a period of two to three days. So the question really arises, what should you do? We look upon this as a form of euthanasia. I'm not advocating euthanasia, obviously not active euthanasia, but passive euthanasia. Legalistically, it's the same. The end product is that the child will die. But by withholding certain extraordinary treatments to this child, his death will occur sooner, and as a result of this, might be much kinder, both on the organism and on the family and on all those involved in such a case. This kind of problem presents itself. Unfortunately, sometimes some of our colleagues go on and continue to, to feed, treat these individuals, and then eventually they do die. But I think the longest one once survived as much as 27 days. So these are the kind of problems we're presented with at birth. Now, during life, the problems are different. They're problems of experimentation. They're problems of trying to advance medicine. When I first started in medicine 30 years ago, there was probably 20 to 25% of all the things that we did in medicine that were really based on solid science. It's amazing. 70% were based primarily upon our art of medicine, taking care of people, caring for them, but yet not knowing about their disease, not really doing the things that we could do scientifically simply because we lacked the knowledge. In the past 30 years, there's been this tremendous explosion of scientific knowledge in the care of the ill, in the discovery of pathological lesions, and in new technology in order to save people that we had no hope of saving 30 years ago. So that today, 70% of what we practice in medicine is science, and only 30% is the so-called art of medicine. So things have changed rather radically. How did those changes come about? They came about because people could do experimentation on man. Why man? Why is this an issue? 
Well, we first became faced with this when it was done poorly. It was done poorly by Hitler's Germany, as all of us recall, with those kinds of experimentations. This put us in a situation where we said, somebody's got to look at this because you can go too far. You can do the wrong thing in quotes for the purpose of science or for the purpose of advancement of disease. And so as a result, with time and as research grew geometrically, the National Institutes of Health developed a conscience for us, if you will, and it was very worthwhile. A committee that exists in every hospital, a committee made up primarily of lay people and some doctors, a committee whose primary purpose was to look at the rights and welfare of the human subject, so-called Human Subjects Committee, so that whenever we do anything today in the way of something new in man, then in fact it must be cleared by this committee. And if not, then we can't do it, and you've read about that in the paper, and any national institute or any national subsidy that we receive would be rescinded. So as a result, these committees began in 1966, and in the past 14 years they have flourished, and they're doing a superb job of being the real conscience of what's going on with respect to medical experimentation. The central question in a medical experimentation is and always will be, what are the, the per permissible limits and the proper condition for experiments on humans? And what are the ethical features involved? Unfortunately, the thing that brought this committee about was some very precipitous things that occurred in New York. One of them had to do with the actual injection of, of cells, cancer cells, into patients, some 22 patients, just to see what would happen with these cells. The experiment was really reasonably good, but it was done on individuals within an institution who did not know what was going on. And in another instance, hepatitis, and some of the greatest gains we've made in hepatitis is the hepatitis virus was injected into retarded children so we could study the effects of hepatitis from its onset. This was done, and because of these particular, what I feel are really atrocities, these committees were formed, the rules are there, and if we follow the rules as they currently are based, I think that we have a very nice opportunity to share this responsibility with others and so that in fact, medical research can go on and can go on in the proper scene of science with primary consideration of the individual. So in order to do experimentation, we must have informed consent. We must consider the value of the experiment. Is it really worthwhile to do? We must consider the risks to the patient. For instance, a simple thing like a cardiac catheterization, probably many people in this room may have even had that done, but it carries with it a death rate. If it's done on the right side of the heart, a cardiac catheterization, then one out of, one out of uh, 1,000 people will die. If it's done on the left side, one out of 5,000 will die. There's a definite death rate. If you just involve anesthesia alone, just to go to sleep with the anesthetist, two out of 1,000 people who are anesthetized will die. These are risks. So you go back to informed consent. Are the risks explained to the patient? And are his welfare and his rights considered under these circumstances? Consent to agree, consensum. 
very important, the essence of experimentation. In the area of experimentation, the areas in which critical issues may be raised have been in genetic engineering. What can we do? Can we build people eventually? We read about, you know, starting life in a petri dish, so-called test tube baby, which is, to my knowledge, has never really scientifically been done. The other possibility is cloning. And there was even a book written on cloning that somebody had cloned, some very rich man had cloned another individual like him. Cloning is probably the worst thing in the world, if you think about it. The most important thing is it can't be done. And we don't see that in the foreseeable future that we'll ever be able to clone mammalian beings. But think about it if you could. What would you have if you did clone? If we had everybody the same as they are now, would we have made any advances? The reason why the real geniuses and the real progress that's been made in this country have occurred is because, in fact, we've had mutations with time. Because, in fact, we aren't the same as our ancestors. And with these chance mutations, we've been able to develop into specific areas of expertise and the areas of music and the arts and in literature and in science. So rather than cloning, perhaps the best thing to do is to avoid that. No reduplication, no cookie cutter cutting of an individual that's identical, which you can't do anyway, but rather look for more mutations because it's through the mutations that we've made the strides that we currently that we currently enjoy. Just a moment about transplantation. Transplantation is involved in ethical problems. I think most of them, though, have been exposed uh, to both the newspapers and in public discussions enough so that it really isn't worth dwelling on, except to mention that for the most part, transplantation is not an ethical problem simply because the people that get transplanted with kidney transplants or heart transplants are people who by definition will not survive unless such a transplant is performed. So from the recipient's point of view, it's 100%. And so that's important. From the donor's point of view, it's different. If the donor is a living related donor, there's a risk and it must be explained. And it is explained carefully to the living related donor. And we have to be very careful. We don't want to use people who don't have a definite interest in the individual to be to receive the transplant. They should be a relative, somebody who is related to us, because this is the best that we can use and the best possible transplant. And when the motivation is obvious, and you don't want to go to prisons or places like that, or offer prices to people in order to give kidneys, because their motivation is not good and will result in some serious problems, as we found out years ago. So in essence, in the live donor situation, there has been very little as far as ethical crises are concerned. Cadaver donor is the same. The difference is, though, with a cadaver donor, somebody who's died, we're in the terrible dilemma then of broaching the problem now of death, the definition of death. And if transplantation has done nothing else other than result in many people who are alive and well and enjoying their three score and ten simply because a diseased organ has been removed and replaced with a new one, the one thing transplantation has done, which has been clear and very, very important in medical science, it has focused our attention on the definition of death. It used to be that we looked at death 
as something anyone in this audience could diagnose. The patient was cold, the patient had no heartbeat, the patient was obviously dead, anybody can make the diagnosis. But now what's happened? We've got all kinds of machines. We can pump for the heart, we can breathe for the lungs, we can support the circulation. And as a result, now all of a sudden we have created our own Frankenstein-like monster. As we keep doing these things, pretty soon we have something going and the center of this is a human being that no one knows whether he's alive or dead because he's being totally supported by these artificial extraordinary means. That put us in a terrible position, not only in transplantation but in all of medicine. What do you do now? The money is running out, the patient is on all these machines, when do we disconnect them from these machines and how so we don't prolong this type of no life if there is no life. Well, the one thing that separates us from the lower organisms is basically our own brain, our ability to, of cognitive thinking. And as a result of that, if we then define death as death of the brain, which we now can define clearly and with very good and precise uh, technology, then we have really found a way to define death and have defined death in this fashion. This hopefully will save us from the problems that we all worry about and we all read about, the so-called death with dignity, the problem of being left in the hospital in an impersonal way attached to all these machines. Everybody will say, I don't want that to happen to me. But the interesting thing is if I say to you, would you like to have a doctor that practice active euthanasia as your physician, I think you'd say no. You'd rather do everything possible to save my life up to the point, and then at that point, when there is no life, then discontinue. And this is the problem you get into when you begin worrying about this particular set of circumstances, and brain death is very important. The problem with death is, that we have created a problem ourselves in our society. Death used to be a very natural thing. When it occurred, it occurred in the home. Usually it was a, the death scene was uh, orchestrated by the person dying. He had his family and friends around him, little children and the like, and he died in his own home. And death was something that we recognized and we knew and accepted as a transition from one life to another. But what have we done? We've taken death from that scene and we've taken it to a hospital with nurses and doctors who are all actively interested in one thing, saving lives, not taking care of people who are dying. And this is what's created the problem that has evolved such things as living wills and the like, and I'll discuss that for just a moment. I think that Jack Marston put it very well in his book on pornography or on uh, the good American death, and he talks about death in the following way. Reflections on America. Good American death, quotes, the medical staff induces him in a kind of dreamlike state in which he thinks that to die amidst the smiling faces in these uniforms, white and immaculate like the wings of angels, is a genuine pleasure, or at least a moment of no consequence. Look what we've done. 
Look what we've done to death. American sociologist Jeffrey Garr has noted in his article on pornography of death, how death has replaced sex as a great taboo. Formerly, children were told that they were brought by the stork, but they were admitted to the great farewell scene about the bed of a dying person. They were there. They saw it. They didn't fear death. Today, we do exactly the opposite. They are initiated in their early years through the physiology and plumbing of love and are not told of grandfather's death. It's the last great taboo, one that we ignore in hospitals as well. So we have to do something about this, trying to get patients back to homes, hospices, anywhere, but not bringing patients into the hospital to die until they cannot be handled somewhere else. When that occurs, though, then we worry. We worry about the machines and the like. What can we do? And that's where living wills come from. And people have stated, well, maybe a living will will be the way to, to avoid this. They're not legal. They're not binding. I might just state to you what they say. In the middle of the living will, it says, in a situation should arise in which there is no reasonable expectation for my recovery from physical or mental disability, I request that I be allowed to die, not to be kept alive by artificial means, or quotes, heroic measures. Heroic measures. You're going to resuscitate them? How much are you going to do? You can bring them back, a lot of people. I do not fear death itself as much as the indignities of deterioration, dependence, and hopeless pain. I therefore ask that medication be mercifully administered to alleviate suffering, even though this may hasten the moment of my death. They don't work, but people like to sign them. Let's go down to the courts now and say, what do the courts have done about our problem, our enigma, the problem we're faced with in medicine? There are really five very important court cases. The first has to do with the fact that if you're a competent person, you do have the right to refuse any form of treatment. And this, the Jehovah's Witnesses, an obvious example of this, refusing blood transfusions when needed for life-saving measures. The Kandura decision in which a gentleman had to have his leg amputated and they said, if you don't get your leg amputated, you're going to die. And he said, I don't want it. He went to court and they said that they upheld that he had the right to refuse treatment. So that was the first thing. If you're competent, you can refuse treatment. The next thing to come along was then can somebody else refuse treatment for you. And that was the parents of Karen Ann Quinlan. Karen Ann Quinlan, for reasons nobody knows to this day, stopped breathing on two occasions for about two or three minutes, 15 minutes apart, and was brain, looked as though she had sustained brain death, but she never was at any time. She went into what was described as a chronic vegetative state. She was deeply comatose, and she was decorticate. She had no transmission from brain to body. And she was on a respirator. And the parents said, we don't want her on that respirator. We want her off. We want to discontinue. The doctor said, we can't take the respirator off because she's still alive. She's not brain dead. And if we take it off and she dies because she needs a respirator, then in essence, we're killing her. That's active euthanasia. We went to court, and all of you know the story. And it turned out the parents eventually got their way. Eventually, she had the tube removed, and she was off the ventilator. And lo and behold, she lives and lives today. 
And she lives in this chronic vegetative state for gosh knows how long. And she still will. But the one thing about that case was it meant that parents could, or family could, in fact, get such a court order. Most important and most sticky are the incompetent. And there was a very important case in this, the Joseph Sankovich case. Joseph Sankovich was a 67-year-old gentleman who had lived his entire life in a mental institution. He had an IQ of 10, a mental age of about 2. He was doing fine, lived 67 years that way. But he developed leukemia, and then it was felt that he should have chemotherapy. The superintendent of that institution felt he shouldn't get it and stood up for the incompetent person and took it to court. He says if he gets the chemotherapy, he's going, his hair is going to fall out, he's going to get sick to his stomach, he's going to get bladder irritations and a variety of other things. He won't understand why he's getting these things, and he shouldn't have it because the, all this is is going to prolong his life an extra six months. And the court upheld this in the Sankovich case that somebody, some guardian, can in fact stand up for the incompetent and the incompetent has the same rights as the competent and this is what was done. Is it possible then to have a so-called no code where you have no resuscitation? If something should happen and the heart should stop, nobody can resuscitate this patient. We call that no code or code blue or a variety of names. And this came in a situation on a patient by the name of Dinnerstein. She was a 67-year-old woman who had Alzheimer's disease, which is a coronary artery disease, and in addition had a stroke, and really was almost vegetating in the hospital. And the children decided that she should have no code, that if something should happen, her heart should stop, nobody should resuscitate her. And that was taken to court, and the court upheld that a no code order could be written on Dinnerstein. That was 1978. Those of you who read the Minneapolis Tribune or Star know that there was a recent case just this week on Monday on a patient by the name of Seibert, a patient who was a wife of a neurosurgeon. In 1959, she was an aquitennial queen, beautiful woman. She's currently in St. Mary's Hospital and is quadriplegic, can move only a couple of fingers, and really is in what would be considered a, a, uh, almost a vegetative state. I have not seen her. The family said they wanted a no-code on her and got the right to get a no-code, which meant that if anything happened, nobody would go by and resuscitate her. And as a result of that, a patient's advocate came by, saw her, talked to her, and was discussing things with her and felt that this, this lady should be, that that no-code order was wrong, was taken to court here in Minneapolis, and the judge here upheld the fact that they could not write and reverse the no-code order. On, on Mrs. Seibert. So that's a reversion. Well, death is a very, very difficult issue to deal with. Living wills are one way. They, all they do is kind of tell you where things are and where things are going. But the most important thing is that in all of these issues is that you, the individual who are responsible, must make the decision on your own morality. I mentioned the greatest commandment as the way that I would deal with such problems. But it's one of the most important things in medicine, how we deal with these medical issues, these critical issues of medical ethics. I think you have to deal with them with compassion, the word meaning to suffer together. We must suffer with our patients with compassion. 
There must be a personal code that we follow, whether it's a Judeo-Christian code or whether it's a Muslim code. Your own code of ethics must in some way play a part. And I think this is extremely important. And you must individualize it. And you can't make general, broad, sweeping pronouncements or solutions for all people. And in essence, I think that as we look upon the field of medical ethics, the most important thing is that we really answer with a very firm yes to Cain's question in the Garden of Eden. Are you your brother's keeper? And the answer is a resounding yes. Thank you. We'll take a moment now that those of you who must leave may do so. Also, those of you who wish to present a question may, uh, perhaps you've already done so, place it on a card, pass it to ushers who will be able to pick it up and bring it forward. What is or are the sources or wellspring of your personal medical ethical position? Well, you might wish to elaborate a little. Well, I think in my case, personally. It has to do with my own personal religious beliefs. And uh, I, I hope that I, I gave that sense, because this is where I believe the only way that we can look at right and wrong. Now, that may be true because in my, in my own personal situation, if, uh, as I say, whether you be uh, a Jew or Gentile or whether you be Muslim or have no religion at all, there must be some moral code which you must follow. And it's very individual and very personal. With me, it's uh, strictly my own religious background and beliefs. Mm -hmm. The Holy Bible, I would guess, would be it. All right. <laughs> very good. Let me uh, pose a question or make a statement that uh, was made in my hearing at a, an annual meeting of a hospital where a, a gentleman from the federal government was sharing some of the problems they have with how to disperse federal monies. That's not least of all an issue today, but he said, if everyone in this country got all the medical care that they could use, there wouldn't be any money for any other cause. Well, that's uh, not quite true. Okay. <laughs> I could address that briefly. One of the other issues, critical issues in medicine today, which is obvious to many of you, is, uh, I mean, Ronald Reagan last night kind of helped point the finger a little bit at money, and money is really the root of all evil here. Mm -hmm. uh, at the present time, 10% of our gross national product goes for health care in some way, 10%. So we're not there yet. That means that per capita in the United States, $1,000 we spend each year for each individual, either through their health care or for whatever reason in health. And I think this is important. You know, and the people that say, well, this is bad. I mean, how can we spend this kind of money? And look at the exorbitant prices that we're paying in hospitals and medical care and the like. And it's nice to philosophize that until you're sick. And then all of a sudden, nobody can put a price on it. Is there a price to life? Is there a price to good health? It's okay for everybody else, but if it's for me, I want a CAT scan. Now, a CAT scan costs the hospital a million dollars, but I want it. Because that's a non-invasive way of looking at my heart or some of my internal organs, which would be good, would make things better for me and provide me with better medical health. 
So that as these advances have come, they've been very expensive. I don't know what the limits are, mm -hmm. but we're in the throes now of reaping the harvest of this tremendous scientific revolution in medicine. And what we must do as physicians is to sort out and not abuse those tests and not abuse those sources of money in our health care. So in essence, I think they're important. I think it's our, our uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to find a way of trying to keep it down to the minimum cost that we possibly can. Right. Thank you for that. Here's a question from someone in the group. In your own code of ethics, do you believe in being honest with your patients, even if it means telling them of their imminent death? Absolutely. It's the most difficult thing that you do. And uh, I think somebody once wrote an article uh, about me in which they said the one thing I can't handle is death, and that's true, I can't. I don't handle it well at all, and, but it's tough. But the most important thing that your patient will appreciate, my, at least from my own philosophy, is that you be extremely candid and truthful with him. Then he can believe whatever you tell him. And you must do it. It's a very difficult thing to walk into somebody who's young and healthy and say, you've got a malignant disease and you're going to die. You don't say it in quite those ways, but basically that's the bottom line. That's very difficult, but to avoid or skirt that issue, you have, I think, uh, essentially avoided one of your most important commitments to that, to that patient. Do you think that the hospice movement may be a good solution to the problem of dying with dignity? It's a help. It's a help in that it gives us that way station, if you will, somewhere between hospital, which is no place to die. It is against every ethic in a hospital every philosophy that we have. And what happens is the people that die in hospitals get shoved off into corners. Nobody wants to visit them. It's the most amazing thing in the world. They're dehumanized. And, and you say, why does that happen? And we try to preach against it. Say, don't do that. Put them in a room with four people. You know, make life happy as you can for them in their final days. But yet, who wants to be there with somebody who's dying and they're in the hospital for something that's not quite that severe? The hospice movement does serve a definite purpose, I think, in providing that other opportunity, that other option, if they can't go home for at least caring for the patient. I have found, if there's somebody at the home, a wife or husband or family, usually can take care of the dying patient very well if given half a chance. And there is a, page, there is a point in time when that becomes very difficult for them to do, and if we can help, we have such a system of nurses that go out to the homes themselves, see the patients, and can usually administer medications or teach how to administer medications, the best thing to do that we could do is to revert death back to where it was before, back to the home and family and away from the hospital. May I please have your views, one person asks, on the rise of holistic medicine clinics? Well, I really don't know what that means. I hope that uh, everybody is practicing holistic medicine. Basically, holistic medicine is taking care of people. And you take care of the whole person. Now, unfortunately, this gets into a problem. When people start saying, this is holistic medicine, you find that the nurses and the doctors and everybody begin to get involved with a lot of things like, what are the interpersonal relationships within the family? And what's the matter with Uncle Joe? And your house is falling apart and all that. That's important. It's part of what's going on in this patient. But you know, that patient's got an illness. 
And the most important thing you can do for that patient is to take care of the illness. You could then, at the same time, people in the social service and others can help handle the rest of this, which is really taking care of the total person. But you must be a little fearful sometimes when people talk about holistic medicine, mm -hmm. because what you're doing there, a lot of that is you're spending a lot of time talking about and doing things that have to do with the psychological and sociological problems of the patient, and unfortunately sometimes forgetting his medical problem. We see that happen occasionally. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like a well patient to be solved many, many problems. <laughs> Please speak to the matter of unnecessary surgery as recently reported in the press, especially for heart bypasses and hysterectomies. That's a difficult issue. Doctors are human, and I suppose that I'd have to say somewhere along the line, I'm sure, that there is unnecessary surgery going on. This has to be going on. I don't know where or how. We're trying to do everything we can to avoid that. We now have quality control groups to go and check on charts and this sort of thing. We have at the University Hospital rounds in which we discuss all complications and all deaths and all operations. And with so many people looking over your shoulders, the chances of a, quote, unnecessary operation are practically nil. And I think this is going away. But it is very difficult to address that issue. Some people say that the hysterectomies, which is the number one operation done in the United States today, it is, next to death uh, to facilitation curatage, this is the most common operation done today. But on the other side of the coin, there are others, gynecologists that will tell you, that if you take out the uterus and the ovaries, then you're not going to have women that are going to die of ovarian carcinoma, cancer, or cancer of the uterus. And so therefore, is it totally unnecessary once it's no longer needed or used? So it's a very difficult question to come to grips with. I think there's a lot of press given to it because many people feel that the unnecessary surgery goes on. I think the actual cases get to be very few. Does the FDA exercise too much authority in the acceptance of new drugs in the U.S.? No, not really. Uh, it's good. It's protecting us all. Um, sometimes they get a little overprotective, and it makes it difficult for us, but I think it's important. Thalidomide was presented to the United States the same time it was presented to Germany. Thalidomide was used in Germany. We know all about the grotesque uh, children that were born because from thalidomide mothers. That didn't happen in the United States because the FDA were dragging their heels. And when this occurred, they were right in this particular instance. And because of that, they chronically refer to the thalidomide case as a reason for taking so long to develop new medications. But I think it's very important. They do strap our hands some. Nothing comes for free. And I think what happens is that you're going to have to have certain restrictions simply because if you don't have those restrictions, then we'll have problems like thimidamide. Mm -hmm. I don't think the FDA over-exercises their authority. Who should make the decision regarding ordinary or extraordinary treatment of infants born with defects? That decision is one that really should be made with the physicians and the parents together. And uh, with good counsel, with good uh, uh, pastoral help, with uh, the physicians pointing out the risks, the potential for life or death, and the parents making the decision in concert with the physicians. This has got to be a team effort. The physicians alone should not make it. 
The parents alone should not make it. They both should confer together. Person Washington, why is the living will of no use? The living will is of use to this degree. It at least tells everybody that, you know, if the time comes, I don't want to be on a lot of extraordinary machines. Well, nobody's going to pull the living will out if you're sitting in the hospital and all of a sudden you've had a cardiac arrest. What they're going to do, hopefully, and they do in all hospitals, is they're going to resuscitate you. And then after all the smoke and the fire and everything else clears, then they're going to decide whether or not you now have a salvageable situation. That's what I want done. And that's what you want done. What you're saying in living will is, once you make a decision that I'm dead, that basically, don't keep me on the machines. But that's a decision already that the physicians are making. So that in essence, and it has no legal binding power anyway. All it says is, I don't want to be on a machine. Well, I hope nobody in this room wants to stay interminably on a machine. So that really what you're doing is reaffirming all of our thoughts about that and not really providing any guidance to the doctor who's caring for the patient. When faced with a decision on surgery, is it wise to have two or three or more opinions? <laughs> well, that's a, a very important point now, and it's a so-called thing, a second opinion. And I see a lot of patients for a second opinion. They've been seen by a doctor, the doctor says, your gallbladder should come out. I want a second opinion, and you have that right. And uh, I think it's a good idea. If you're in questioning your mind whatsoever about something that's been suggested, get a second opinion. What's been found, it was interesting, when second opinions were first were started, they thought, well, this is going to, quote, slow down unnecessary surgery if there is unnecessary surgery going on. And what it did, in fact, is with second opinions, so often that the second opinion was more often in favor of not only the doctor who wanted to do the operation, but occasionally when the doctor didn't want to do the operation, the second opinion wanted to do the operation. It actually increased the number of operations when this occurred. But that's an aside. I think the most important thing is, if you're not really sure, or you have any question in your mind, just say to your physician, I'd like a second opinion. And he will give you that opportunity, give you some names if you like, and go get that second opinion. It's your life. You have one chance at it. You should really do the best with it. And should never be ashamed. I hear patients say, well, I don't want to do that because my doctor will feel bad if I ask for a second opinion. Well, how can you worry about your doctor feeling bad when it's your life? <laughs> All right. This is a very, obviously comes from a very personal base. My daughter has Addison's disease and diabetes. Would you advise a pancreas transplant in this case? She's only 30 years old and unusually intelligent and beautiful. <laughs> uh, at this point in time, that would be a difficult question to answer. That. Uh, pancreas transplants are a very experimental procedure. We've done 21 over at the university. It's the only place doing them currently that I know of. We have seven of them that are going along very well without insulin, and we're in the process of developing this technique. It is, as I pointed out, an experimental technique. We are doing it under certain specific guidelines, and those guidelines were set by ourselves, approved by our Human Experimentation Committee, and only people that we're doing this on are people that we have had a previous kidney transplant who are diabetic and who need a pancreas, or on patients who have an identical twin or what we call an identical brother or sister that we can use for a donor. 
And under those circumstances, we have considered those patients. It's not something that is now a fact. It is, in fact, something that is developing and emerging. This is how open-heart surgery started. This is how all the advances that you now enjoy started. We're still at that embryonic stage. What is your opinion of the report from California of the creation of a sperm bank for the producing of geniuses? <laughs> well, I think that's kind of like my opinion on uh, cloning. Mm -hmm. I think there'd be nothing more dull than to have more of the same. And uh, I can't think of any of the people on that list that I saw that I'd care to see more of. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> Cost ethics, this one is entitled, do only those who can afford the best get the best? Do we spend as much on the welfare recipient as on the corporate president? Should we spend as much on an elderly person as on a young person who uh, has his or her life ahead? Well, it's often been said in medicine, it's probably true, that the two people that get the best care in medicine are the, the poor and the rich. Mm -hmm. And all of us in between just kind of, you know, we're here. Mm -hmm. uh, that's now no longer true. I think that good medicine is given throughout. There is no class or strata now that doesn't get it. The interesting thing about all that, you bring that up about a prejudiced group mm -hmm. or prejudged group. I spoke for a moment about abortion. The interesting thing was that now that we say abortion's okay, the Supreme Court then ruled that abortion should not uh, should not be subsidized by state or welfare funds. Mm -hmm. And immediately now you raise a very important question because now all of a sudden you're saying, okay, it's okay for those who can afford it, but it isn't okay for those who can't afford it. So now you've made two classes of citizens. And that's a very strange decision at best. If it's good for someone, it's good for all. This is sort of in the same vein. According to this week's press release on the new University of Minnesota Hospital, by the year 1988, the patient room will be $1,200 a day. Who will be able to afford to be a patient? Well, you have to look at the $1,200 in, in 1988 or whatever mm -hmm. it is. If the new university hospital isn't built and the university hospital currently as is is still there in 1988, dilapidated as it is, Mm -hmm. The cost for a room will be $1,130 rather than $1,200. Mm -hmm. It's basically, and a lot of people don't realize this, basically there's about a $70 differential hmm. that is to help pay for the new institution. But it's going to be the same in every hospital within the Twin City area. And all it's saying is that this is the price of medicine and the price is going up and uh, it's getting more expensive to be in a hospital. Dr. Nigerian, would you comment on the ethics of implantation of artificial devices such as heart valves, pacemakers, insulin dispensers, please, and where do we stop? Well, we don't stop. We keep doing all the things. Let's face it, what are we here for in medicine? We're here to give you your three score and 10. Maybe now it's three score and 20. And to give it to you in the best quality life we can. If a valve doesn't work in your heart, now the tremendous technology has come along where we can put in a new valve and replace it, and you're living well and with good quality of life, that's tremendous. Any device you put in, new hips, we've got people walking around now, couldn't walk before, because we can put hips in and totally replace their hips or their knees or their joints, variety of things. These are marvelous advances. The insulin pump device 
is something that is just getting off the drawing boards now. It's a long way away. But wouldn't it be nice, if and when it works, that you can take patients who are diabetic, of which there are juvenile onset diabetic, maybe 700,000 in the United States, uh, total diabetes who require insulin, maybe 2 million in the United States, who are sticking themselves once, twice, three times a day with a needle. And if they had an implanted device in which was delivering insulin, I think that would be great. And so, yes, I'm behind that 100%. I can't think, what do you mean, when do we stop? We don't stop. As long as we can improve the quality of your life so that we can keep that body going at the best quality you can, it's a vehicle of the soul, and it's our job to keep it as healthy as possible, however we can do that. We thank you not only for your address, but for that affirmation. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs>